Welcome to the Republican Professor. Today we have with us Jason Pye. Did I say your name right? <laughs> you you did. You did. <laughs> uh, with with Due Process Institute. Thanks for being here, Jason. Ah, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, uh, I'm my only connection with you is uh, like on Instagram, <laughs> and <laughs> I don't even remember what it what post it was that I saw that I started following Due Process Institute, but whatever it was, I liked it. And um, so, it, you know, I've had the thought like I'd like to cover this set of topics, criminal justice stuff at some point. Um, and now let's get this on the record. You're not an attorney, right? I am not an attorney. No, but I am a lobbyist, oh. which I'm not sure which one's worse. So your stock went up and then it went right back down. Uh, right. <laughs> wow. What's it like being a lobbyist? Um, for you? Well, you, you, you get a lot of weird looks. Uh, I'm, I'm originally from Georgia. Uh, and uh, I, when I, my previous job, I spent six and a half years at freedom works, which is a conservative libertarian organization based in Washington, DC. I would actually commute from Atlanta to DC I was probably, you know, probably 38 to 40 weeks out of the year. And so I still had my friend group back in Atlanta and um, Metro Atlanta. And, uh, you know, they, I mean, th these guys, most of my friends back home knew I was the quote unquote good lobbyist, meaning that I was a limited government advocate and, you know, philosophically libertarian and was working to cut spending, cut taxes, among other things, cut regulation. And, uh, you know, so I they they didn't they didn't frown upon my my job they still don't uh mm -hmm. but there's a, there is a negative connotation that comes of being a lot a, a lobbyist and it's it's frustrating yeah. to say the least because you know people will say well you know lobbyists you know lobbyists are are bad because they have so much influence over over members of congress and so on and so forth they're corrupt blah 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 blah, blah. and you know, we ought to put more restrictions on lobbying and a lot of people <laughs> my, my response is always well you know, the First Amendment protects lobbying. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yes, it does, because it says we have the right to redress our grievances. That Ooh. is, redressing our grievances, it, it, one, it's protected speech just generally in the confines of the First Amendment. And two, uh, what do you think redressing our grievances is? Mm -hmm. uh, so, it, you know, in whatever way, shape or form those grievances might might shape, be shaped, um, that is what I do is I'm I'm just I just happen to be paid to redress grievances. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but you know, I, I was at Freedom Works uh, September 2014 through February 2021, and left for bipartisan pastures at the Due Process Institute, where I've been ever since. And and you know, it's it's a fun job. Uh, it's highly stressful. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I well, what's what's stressful I, I hate, about it? Well, one, I mean, it, it's uh, I actually have recently had a couple people come to me asking for advice about they wanted to pursue a career in advocacy. And my response was like, you know, this is a great job if you don't mind losing a lot. Really? And yeah, yeah because, well, that's the that's the that's the fact of the matter. I mean, <clears throat> you know, um, you know, in any given year, you'll have you know, deep, at Due Process Institute, I've probably worked on a few dozen different bills um and we've we've had some successes but those successes have been limited um 
And, and that's in a lot of it's because of the hyperpartisan atmosphere in which yeah. we currently live. Right. Um, and okay. it's, it makes, it makes in everything we do is bipartisan and there is bipartisanship on the issue of criminal justice, but um, it's, hmm. but there's so much hatred and bitterness and anger directed from one side or the other. It makes it really hard to sort of, break through the the hyperpartisan nonsense that we see on any given day in Washington DC. So that's that's why it's like, you know, you you yeah. you have to learn to live with the frustration and you have okay. to also learn how to leave it at home when work is over. Yeah. Or leave excuse I, me, leave I it see. at work when work is over. Right. <laughs> so Due Process Institute is um a nonpartisan is it a lobbying group or is it you know, a think I thought it was like a think tank. Um so due process <laughs> so due process institute is uh we we are an advocacy organization. We can we are the way okay. we brand ourselves is we focus on bipartisan so we're law, lawyers and lobbyists for the constitution who focus on bipartisan solutions uh that okay. will reform the criminal legal system. Gotcha. Okay. So when what what was it that got you interested? What do you think the most interesting part of your work is there? Oh, I man. guess there's actually um, two questions there, but I, I don't want to give them both at the same time because I don't want to overload you. But, <laughs> but like the fine. first one was kind of like a biographical thing, like what yeah. drew you into it. But the second one, Whoa. we can you can take whichever one you want in first. Uh, the uh, The question of what is most interesting to you about what you do. So I think the thing that's most interesting to me about what I do is, is um, seeing just how, I guess it's a multi, I guess it's a, there's a multiple answers here because okay. there are so many different facets to what I do. So yeah. I, one thing I've always loved doing is, is, you know, reading legislation and learning um, legislation, you know, cause there's so much in, in, that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you like so, reading that stuff? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I actually had an office. And these are proposals, the right? They're not, yeah, they're not these, law. Yeah, okay. Yeah, these are these are proposals. And like this morning, for example, uh, I had an office, a Republican office uh, on the House side. Uh, actually, they emailed me last night, but I didn't get to look at their bill until today, this morning. And I was reading through it and I'm going through, he's asking for my opinions on it. And if you, if you read the surface, of the bill, you're like, ah, you know, I mean, I guess some of the sense, and then you start going and comparing it to what's currently in code because they were amending the U.S. code, and I'm like, eh, a lot of the same concerns we had and other with other bills are are still present in this one. They're not as bad, but they're still present. So that's one aspect of it. Just you learn a lot, and I, mm -hmm. I feel like my 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 knowledge on this particular issue, these particular issues, has just grown exponentially since I started working at Due Process Institute. The um, so that's one part. The other part is you know going and lobbying and meeting offices because not every office like these offices are not like a monolith. They're each one has different concerns and uh, different constituencies and and yeah. uh, you know whether they're in the district or outside groups, whatever the case may be. So you're going in, you're meeting these offices, and you find that like you know, and, and one you find the staffers. This will come as no surprise. I I I think at least to your listeners, these staffers um often have their own agendas. <laughs> and oh yeah. That was that was something I learned very early on when I started doing lobbying. Um, but just how how 
often stark it is, I think, is the one thing that kind of caught me off guard. It wasn't that they had their own agenda. It was just more of like, wow, you're in a completely different place from your boss. Because, um, like, mm-hmm. I've talked to your boss and I know where your boss is. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so that's it's, it's just meeting the offices, learning the staff, meeting the staffers, learning what they care about, learning what they're interested in. Um, you know, and also just, I mean, I, I, this is not a prestige thing by any stretch of the imagination. I I gotta tell you, one of my, some of my favorite days are just going over the hill and just going and sitting down between, between my meetings, like in one of the cafeterias or one of the coffee shops that are on the hill and just like watching the people who walk by. Cause you've seen all cast of characters walk by in these, uh, (laughs) uh, during these days. So yeah, that's the, that's, I mean, there's multiple things. So you like you like uh no getting to know people uh it's, yeah i i i think you must I know a lot of people you probably I know do, a lot I of do. people i do uh my uh it's my girlfriend and her brother her younger brother often will send me tweets from people we are on a we the two of us are on a, the three of us i should say are on a text thread together and uh he her younger brother there's a 22 year age difference between her and her younger brother so he's wow. he's 20 years old we're in our we're, we're both 42 and Not even uh, biologically possible <laughs> <laughs> same father different mothers oh, um so yeah. um so um yeah. but no we they'll send me tweets from people and i'm like oh i know that guy or i know that i know her and they're like of course you do of course you know that uh-huh. person so it's it's yeah. like a it's almost a daily occurrence but yeah. it's um you know i do know a lot of people and it, it, it it's just i i enjoy one i enjoy good conversation no matter no matter what it's about you and i could sit here and talk football for the rest of the day or talk baseball for the rest of the day and i'd be happy um you know uh i enjoy good conversation i enjoy uh, i don't know if you'd be happy with my ability to keep up with you in those conversations because <laughs> i don't have much on that no it's 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 fine like i you know the 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 thing that i think i find most fascinating about meeting people meeting staffers on the hill um, I gave a speech or a talk back January of last year. And one of the things I was giving a presentation about was, well, I was giving a presentation about advocacy, but one of the things I talked about was one of the, there are tricks that I have at my disposal, not tricks, tricks is the wrong way to to, to frame it. Sounds like I'm pulling one over on someone I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, there are various ways I find to make a staffer feel comfortable. And, and it's, and it, it it goes from anywhere from like where are you from? Uh, you know, just asking. Well, I, you know, I've been. You know, let's say you're 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 from, um, you know, Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll go into because I've been to Nashville. It's like I you know make that connection and start talking about Nashville and my you know how where I've been when I'm there and yeah or uh, or uh, what kind of what sports they sports teams they follow because you know I'm well rounded enough and baseball and college football to discuss it nfl not as much but i still know enough uh music is always one that i love to talk about with staffers because I'm a, I'm a musician on, on the, in my spare time oh that's cool uh yeah and uh so those are those are ways i find to to get in with a staffer to make them feel comfortable to make them feel like they can let their guard down around me and i'm not well, that's, that's like, what I'm business not... business people do i i know a lot of business right. people and they're always like looking for some kind of connection yeah, making a connection is vitally important, and yeah. um, you know, and you know whether it's someone from the south or someone from some city I've been to, it's there's always a way to make a connection, and that's something I've really found is a useful tool in in my job, and and um, 
uh, like I said, it's it's probably saved me from getting thrown out of a couple offices. So yeah, I bet. <laughs> so when when you're reading these legislative proposals, um, do you have something you're looking for that you you want to see, or do or is it kind of the thing where you don't really you're not totally committed about what you want to see exactly? Uh, and so, you're, you're, you're just kind of learning. I would imagine that you have something like you're looking for. That's good. So what, yeah, would, that, I mean, I, what would that be? If, if that's it's, the case? So it depends on the proposal. Um, you know, some, some legislative proposals we get that we want to look at are, are pretty straightforward. We know what they're doing. We, you know, cause a lot of what we deal with is um, our amending current code sections, especially on the criminal justice side. So, you know, it's going to be something in Title 18 dealing with criminal penalties or incarceration or what have you, or Title 21, which is the Controlled Substances Act. So you're looking okay. for specific uh, changes, tweaks to the existing code or amendments to existing code. So those are all things that we kind of look for. Uh, but they are more complex, like the one I got this morning, that is a more complex proposal uh, that you you have to go on the surface. It looked fine. But you have to go into the code itself and see the detail because they're going back and making all these references to existing codes. So you have to go back and compare is existing code. So one thing this might be interesting to your listeners. Um, I, I don't know how uh, I see the Golden Gate Bridge behind you. So I'm assuming you're in California. Um, so uh, I don't know how California does it, but Georgia and many other state legislatures, when they introduce a bill, it goes through legislative council. They draft you a bill. And what they do is they put, if you're amending a code section, they put the whole code section in and then they strike through what you're repealing out. And then they replace it with new text that's underlined. Mm -hmm. They don't do it like that in Congress. No. So it can be confusing. Yeah. Uh, that's, former, yeah. Yeah. Former that's, that's true. Well, you also have to kind of know what the code means like yeah. in practice, like, Yes. What's the code code for? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, know. you, you have to you have to follow all those sorts of things. Former Congressman Justin Amash, uh, mm -hmm. when he was around, introduced a bill called the Readable Legislation Act that Ooh, would like do that. do bills just like they did them in state legislatures. Um, That's a good. Idea. And yeah. And I, I really wish that piece of legislation would get adopted. You know, our, our the framers and founding fathers talked about how legislation should be easy to understand law should be easy to understand but congress uh -huh. makes it way more complex than right. it should be right right yeah so when you hear the term due process in the in the name of your uh, organization what does that mean to you due process what does it mean <sighs> and what should it mean does it mean sure. something that doesn't it doesn't doesn't quite match what it should mean no, 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 not for us. I mean, due process. So we, we, the the concept of due process goes back centuries. I mean, this is something that was in the Magna Carta. Uh, this was something that was uh, discussed in in Blackstone's commentaries. Uh -huh. This was something that you know, I mean, so that's English common law. Um, we due process means that a person, at least in our in our constitutional con constraints, um. Talk about the fifth, fifth Amendment, talk about the 14th Amendment. Due process means someone has the right, especially in like a criminal trial, to have 
their case heard, has the right to be innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and then we have other, you know, other amendments like the right to speedy trials, right to a trial uh, by their, you know, a jury of their peers. Um, all things fall into the, the, the category of due process. Um, so you, there's been a lot of discussion today about George Santos, uh, the congressman <laughs> from New York, the congressman from New York who I saw that today. Who, who has been indicted on 13 different counts of, of criminal activity, everything from wire fraud to money laundering to lying to the to making false statements to the House of Representatives mm. and so on. Um, mm. In the eyes of the public, because of all the, the news coverage he has gotten, because he has he, he has told so many lies, I, I gather that he doesn't even know what the truth is. <laughs> he is he is still innocent until proven guilty. The government has to make a case that beyond a reasonable doubt that he is guilty of of all of these or one of these charges. Um, and so in the eyes of the law and he and in, really in the eyes of the public, regardless of what he said or how much of an, <laughs> a liar he has made himself out to be, he has to be presumed innocent. And and that's that's one element of it. Then you have something like um, there is there is and this is this is a good example of what we mean by due process. Um, in under current federal law, if you are, let's say George Santos, let's use him as an example. Let's say that he's convicted of one of these criminal offenses. A judge, based on a preponderance of the evidence, meaning more likely than not, may Which sentence is a him. That's a different standard than for the jury. That's right. The, the, the jury has to decide beyond a reasonable doubt or conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty of a criminal offense. But after the verdict's been reached, a judge may, according to federal law, yeah. use his behavior. Yeah. To give him an to give him a, a, a more lengthy sentence, um, even right. if he was acquitted of those charges, um, uh, I like call where that you're, a, I like where you're going with this. Yeah, okay. We call that a, acquitted conduct sentencing, and it's yes, and it's right. it is a it is a severe uh, violation of 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 our constitutional order. So much so that you had a few years ago, um, you had more several years ago, I should say, you had Justices Scalia, Thomas and Ginsburg each sign a dissent. Uh, it was a it was uh, uh, someone had applied for cert for one of these cases for an acquitted conduct case and the court didn't hear it. Mm. And Scalia, Thomas and Ginsburg each signed a dissent, uh, basically blasting um the practice of acquitted conduct sentencing that is officially bipartisan right there that is officially bipartisan and look that we we worked on that bill there's a there is a bill um it hasn't been reintroduced in the current congress but we expect it to be reintroduced in the current congress that would get rid of the practice um uh would, what's the, would, what's the main problem with that if you could put it well i mean it's what it's, bothers you it, most about it well what bothers me most about it this this would be a, a this would be conduct for which the a jury of someone's peers found them not guilty or did not convict them for. Right. So, but by so they're by innocent per, of that. 
Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. By all intents and purposes, they're they're innocent. Uh, and yeah. you have a, a judge going, taking his authority unconstitutionally to impose a, a, a heftier sentence on someone right. based on a preponderance of the evidence for conduct that person was acquitted of and sent, giving them that's that yeah. is that flies in the face of of due process mm-hmm. and and how and and look we we are one way or another that practice will end the question is does congress do it or do the courts do it all right so for all the uh non-criminal defense appeals lawyers out there um which is most people uh <laughs> and i and you know i i i'm I'm going to edge on the very borderline of my understanding of these things pretty quickly, although I did have an aspect of my dissertation on this exact issue right here with the sentencing guidelines. But just just so people know, there are sentencing guidelines in place that are put forward by a commission. So and the commission is not Congress. It's not the exact it's not the White House. It's not. It's it's a like an, one of those independent agencies, quasi independent agencies, and we could it's debate U- about whether US... they should even exist or not, right? But it's the U.S. Sentencing Commission, U.S. Sentence Commission, yeah. And it's it's um. So these guidelines establish a range of discretion uh, for a judge, and y- there is. There's some good reason to to have that range of discretion for a judge. Um, and we could get into that. You know, I'd like to hear what you think about that. The range of discretion. Sure. What's the pro uh, argument for that? But there's this con, and the con is what you're saying is that uh, it seems like the judge can abuse that discretion <clears throat> by doing something that looks like it violates due process which is you're not supposed to be punished in this country uh, or treated like a criminal for conduct that you not only are presumed innocent of, but you actually have been acquitted by a jury. You're officially innocent, meaning you can't be tried again for that double jeopardy, right? That yeah, would violate no, double jeopardy. So, but But then the judge can by a different standard, not, not beyond a reasonable doubt. So it failed reasonable doubt. There was a reasonable doubt for that conduct. The judge can swoop in there with preponderance of evidence, which is a much lower standard. It's like 51, 49, mm-hmm. you know, if re- reasonable doubt is, what would you say? Reasonable doubt is 95, five. I don't know. Uh, reasonable like doubt is reasonable doubt is a you know 99.9. 99. Okay. That's 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 what I would say. I'm not even sure what the percentage is, but but preponderance evidence is nowhere near the 90%. Yeah. It's it's like 51%. Did you it's 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 like and so the judge can go, well, yeah. Um I mean, what's a good example? Uh, we're talking about someone that's been charged with multiple things. <laughs> so the government is throwing like 10 things at them and maybe one or two things stick. Yeah. And uh, so the other eight, they didn't really have the evidence. 
They they so, just were trying to scare the guy or whatever. But then the judge but, can go, well, there was some evidence, and yeah, so I'm going to give you a, the max of the sentencing guidelines. Whereas, like, you know, we're not talking about giving sentences outside of the guidelines, right? We're talking about within the guidelines. If you got those two, you'd be the range would be if you were in the middle. I don't know. Let's say it's two to five years, and it would be normal for a judge to give you like two and a half years or whatever. Yeah, uh, I mean the the guidelines. You got to remember the guidelines are are prescriptive. Uh, they're not. Um, uh, they are. They are. Since the Booker case, I think in two thousand four, where they okay, have been right. purely purely prescriptive. That's that's it. Um, gotcha. Okay. So yeah, so the judge so, is bound by them. Is what you're saying? Well, no, no, no. The prior to Booker, the judge was bound by them. Uh, but when Booker, Bo- when okay. yeah when Booker came through, and this was 2004, 2005, I don't remember the exact year. Yes, that's the right. The guideline the guidelines have been prescriptive, except in cases where Congress has required a mandatory minimum sentence. So if you've committed a gotcha. a, a, a drug felony, uh, like a trafficking felony that carries a five year mandatory minimum sentence you are going to get at minimum 60 months. Um, So, but the, and based on, and judges have to take in a number of uh, different uh, aspects when determining a sentence, it's prior criminal history, uh, the nature and nature and circumstances of the, of the offense, whether you have accepted responsibility for the offense. Uh, There are a number of factors that have to take into consideration to determine, to determine the length of a sentence. So um, if you are, you know, if you are, if you're in a situation where you're, uh, you know, a category one offender who has, you know, little to no criminal history, um, the chances of you serving, um, unless there's a mandatory minimum, the chances of you serving a lengthy sentence are likely low, depending on the offense. I got, I got an example. I think it's good to give an example. Thank you for that, by the way. So the Booker decision, that's a Supreme court decision. I think you're right. I think it's like 2005, I can't yeah. remember who was in the majority on that. It seems like it was a five four thing, if I recall right. I, yeah, I don't. I don't remember off the top of my head. I mean, I've I've referred to Booker several times, but I haven't looked at the opinion. Probably, I remember. I remember needing to read it a few. And there's actually a couple different ones, if I recall right. There's a Booker one, and then there's another one that's kind of important. I'm not sure if yeah. there's two Bookers or not actually. But okay, so now. Stay with us, people, because this is a little bit convoluted, but I promise you there will be this very clear, interesting thing at the at the end of this little uh, thing that, that would be very important for us to, to think about. It's a little bit technical right now, but yeah. uh, it's going to get really clear and, and there's going to be a happy place of understanding, I think, after, and you're going to have something to talk about at cocktail parties and which is the whole point <laughs> of the whole thing. Right. But you know, um, there was a case in the DC circuit and, um, a while ago, and it was, it was this guy that had been under investigation for drug dealing and he got five years, he got five years which was, I think, the max penalty for making a false statement on a postal signing form or something. But it was the so that's what they got him on. They threw everything at him and it all none of it stuck. But they during the investigation, he had signed for a delivery of a package like Fred Flintstone or something. 
And that's what they got him on was a false statement. And I was, <laughs> and, and I remember thinking to myself, that is incredible that you could sign. I don't think most people know that signing Fred Flintstone on a delivery package is a false statement, federal offense, like five year minimum or whatever. And he get, he got the max. I don't know if it was yeah. five years, but it was the, whatever it was. It was like the max of the sentencing guidelines. Jeez. And so this issue came up and I was like in my research and I was like, I got to really think about what I think about this. This is this is a little complicated because it kind of the impression is this. The cops know he's guilty. The investigators know he's guilty. And sensitive juries kind of pick up on this and they just kind of go with whatever the cop says because they just yeah. believe cops. Right. They're like, oh, well, he he was arrested, so he must be guilty. Well, that's not actually what not, you're supposed to do as a juror. You're not supposed to do <laughs> right. that as a juror because you could be wrong and the cops could be wrong. They have made mistakes before and they make state mistakes every day. They're just people and, and judges can be wrong. And sometimes people get, so yes, this guy could have been a total dirt bag, but you're telling me that he signs Fred Flintstone or whatever on, on the, on the receipt for the package. It's not what was in the package that got him the sentence. It was what he put his name on and a testimony of the, uh, the postal delivery carrier person. No, it's, you it's gotta be kidding me that that's what gets you five years. I mean, that's no, certainly not with normal prosecution, right? No, I mean, it's, it's situations like that are, uh, yeah, I'm not familiar with that case. Uh, they're on, but situations like that are on the, you know, probably extreme end. And, and maybe that person had, you know, something else in their criminal history or, uh, that, that necessitated a longer sentence, but, uh, you know, I don't know, but, you know, it, situations like that are, look, um, hmm. when you're, when you're dealing, like, go think, think back to the, um, <clears throat> confirmation hearings for Katanji, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so in, in, there was a lot, uh, in that, in that um in those hearings about the way she had sentenced in child pornography cases and this is this is probably not the best example but it is an example because it shows what it shows was that judges and this is just kind of like highlighting the guidelines issues okay um, judges were sentencing below the recommended recommendation that the guidelines suggested uh like frequently and but this was happening this wasn't in this wasn't just in in it wasn't only her doing it was other judges doing it too um and why were they doing this, that what was the what's well, one the they had they, they one i don't know the specific reasons case by case instances i i don't know the specific reasons uh i didn't look at any of the individual cases we weren't engaging i was watching was the hearing policy hearings. thing like they don't believe this should be criminal conduct or was it i i, th I think no, no 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 it wasn't that it was more along the I'm, I'm i'm strongly remember the specific details so basically it was a situation where it had become standard practice in federal courts if memory serves uh to give to give us instead of giving the the guideline recommendation it was to give a lower lower amount of time in prison now these people were still going to prison um but there may have been mitigating circumstances um maybe mm -hmm. you know 
and, and, and I, again, I want to stress here that I don't remember any specific details from any of these. Um, and we were not engaging on her confirmation, but um, we don't engage on any nominees. But if memory serves, you might have had situations where someone themselves, like someone who was accused of doing this, was themselves ex experienced sexual abuse as a minor. Uh, and, you know, situations like that, there are different things you have to take into account in sentencing, um, uh, sentencing any type of offense, not just these. Um, right. But it had become common practice in federal courts to to give less than the guidelines recommended. Okay. Well, one of the yeah. things we were pointing out, one of the things we were pointing out, like, well, you know, well, we weren't pointing this out, but one of the things a lot of people were pointing out on Twitter and so on was that Congress has the power to to create a mandatory sentence for these these offenses if they want to. Now, um, that is a whole process. That is not something uh, that is not something that is easy to do. Um, right. But, you know, Congress, if if they want to blame anyone, they should blame themselves. And, and because they have known since 2005 and the Booker decision, by the way, was a mishmash. Uh, I went and looked it up uh, <laughs> after you asked me about it. That is that there were dissents and opinions all over the place. And Scalia, for one example, joined a, the majority in one place and then had his own dissent in another place. It was pretty interesting, but Congress can easily could fix, not easily Congress can fix that. Uh, and it's not something they should blame um, any judges for um, other than, you know, not having clarification on how they need to do this. And the guidelines being, if memory serves, I think the guidelines were kind of like a jumbled mess as it comes to uh, all that stuff. And, I, and look, I say that as someone, you, you ask, you know, the reasons I got into this. I mean, I have plenty of them, but one of them is, you know, I have two sexual abuse survivors in my family uh, and a recovering drug addict in my family. And these are immediate family members. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's some cons you have to take in consideration victims and what victims needs are and you also have to take in the consideration the backstory of people who even are involved in any sort of criminality and especially right. drug addiction so sure yeah i i totally get it yeah i'm with you on that i want to just really quickly uh for those of you who are a little frustrated trying to follow my postal package story the case I just found it, it's United States versus Moore, 612 in the third volume of the Federal Reporters, starting at 698, D.C. Circuit, 2010. And it's actually not really a, a, a sentencing guideline issue. It was a mens rea issue. But that's kind uh, of a due process issue, too. We could get into 100%. That. 100%. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Brett Brett Kavanaugh was actually the judge in that one of the judges on the three judge panel that yeah the mens rea and, yeah go, he was rea. complaining he was complaining that there's no mens rea you can't establish he meant to you know had criminal intention when he i, I think when it, when it comes to the the acquitted acquitted conduct sentencing issue just to to close the loop on that i said that whether the court does it or congress fixes the issue it's going to be addressed I think we have the votes on the court right now to address the acquitted conduct sentencing issue. Um, mens rea is an entirely separate issue, and it's one that that doesn't yes. get a ton of. It doesn't. It, it's not. And yes, it is a due process issue. Uh, you can go back to Johnson versus United States. Um, 
the Supreme Court. No, this was a a 2015 case uh, related to the Armed Career uh, Criminal Act. Um, So they had uh, in the the Armed Career Criminal Act had a a residual clause that was meant to capture basically like the Armed Career Criminal Act is basically for repeat violent offenders. Uh, individuals, I think, so basically it's like the three strikes law for violent offenses or serious, serious violent felonies. I think serious drug related felonies, if memory serves. Um, so there was this residual clause that talked about other behavior that may be deemed violent. Uh, and Johnson, and I don't remember the specific ins and outs of the Johnson case. Even I wrote a, I wrote a paper about this, um, years ago. Um, it's, it's, I think I wrote that in 2015, um, another lifetime ago, as it were. Uh, but ACA, the residual clause was like it gutted ACA. It was like the, the second or third time ACA had been gutted by the Supreme Court in some way. And so basically, it's like this this vague description of other behavior that wasn't specifically defined that that had no um, no real parameters on it, other than it has to have some tangential connection to a potential violent offense. So. Um, there's a there was a case this is separate from Johnson uh, where someone had uh, had found they were pulling up carpet. Senator Mike Lee talks about this case uh, some uh, or has talked about it some. You have this case where a guy was pulling up carpet and found a bullet, and this guy had two prior or one or two prior violent felonies. Uh, found a bullet. Now he had no gun. He didn't have it oh, wasn't his yeah. bullet. And he was prosecuted. Is this the for, Johnson case you're talking about? This is no. This was separate from Johnson. Okay. But but, the, but you but what Scalia called Johnson, you know this this residual clause issue in in Johnson. He called it a you know, he called the, the Armed Career Criminal Act a farce playing playing in courts throughout the country, you know because of the the way ACA had had, had this because of this residual clause and because it prevailed pre- uh, failed to provide fair notice to uh, individuals because they didn't know that things that they might have done uh, could be considered a criminal offense. And this kind of goes to the broader point. So there's a there's a guy by the name of Mike Chase who, in full disclosure, serves on uh, Due Process Institute's board. Um, he, he wrote a book a few years ago, pre-pandemic. Uh, it was like an il- illustrated, uh, it's, I think it's called a crime a day, an illustrated guide on how to become a federal criminal. Wow. Um, in any event, go to amazon.com and look up Mike Chase. Uh, okay. and, and Mike clearly, like he runs the Twitter account crime a day. And I think he said that if he were to post one crime in the federal code or in the federal code of regulations or the code of federal regulations that, um, each day he would be at it for like 800 years or something like that. So, but you know, wow. there we we every day we engage in behavior, yeah, uh, that we consider mundane and not important that could yeah. be considered a federal crime. And Harvey Sil- Silver, there's a guy, author by the name of Harvey Silverglate who also wrote a book called uh, Three Felonies a Day. Uh, it, it, he posits on the the theory that the average American commits three felonies a day. Often, I mean, without even knowing that they're committing a felony. Um, okay, so, let's let's camp out there for a sec, because that's uh, raises an issue that I think it would be great for get your thoughts on. Okay. Uh, what's the problem with that? Let's say somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, um, 
Jason, I don't see the problem. It, they're not charging people for three felonies a day. And it's kind of like parking on the street when you're not supposed to park. You get away with it. Typically, maybe you get a parking ticket every once in a while. But what's the problem with that? What's what's the problem with having so many laws that you can just daily your daily life? You break them every day. There's a LSU professor by the name of, I think his name is John Baker. And by the way, I'm sorry if you hear some noise in the background. I have a cats uh, and they are playing with toys. Okay. Um, so, so, um, so John, I think it was professor John Baker who, who once said, and this is a very profound statement. He said that not one person in the United States, 18 or over, uh, well, basically every person in the United States over the age of 18 can be prosecuted for a federal crime. <laughs> it's a profound statement. And that's because that's because, and that's um, not hyperbolic. He's it's not, not hyperbolic. Saying, it's real. The, the, as it's the kids real. say, the, it's literal. <laughs> it's literal. Yeah. Uh, 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 as my girlfriend's seven-year-old daughter says, actually, it's yeah. literally true. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, so, no, you you, you are, um, we don't really know. And, and this is this is part of the problem. And because right. Right. because we don't know the full extent of the problem, we don't know. We don't know what what behavior may tr trigger. Like you don't have to. Yeah, you're yeah, right. They 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 are pro prosecute prosecutors aren't charging people for routine mundane stuff every day, but right. they could. Okay, they could. That's it right we there. Have, That's it they right could. There. We we don't know how many laws are based on, on their discretion. That's right. We don't know how many laws are on the books currently. There is the estimate is that there are five thousand criminal statutes in the US in US code. But insane. But but there might be as many as 300,000 regulations that carry criminal penalties. That means yes. regu regulations that and have growing. been and, and growing, growing. Regulations that have been published, promulgated and published in the Federal Register by ex by agencies with rulemaking authority that yeah. tie back to those criminal penalties right and so yeah. th there there let me there's a great example of uh and and i may forget the ins and outs of all this one but this one deals with like the u.s like the migratory birds act you had this woman who had found a baby woodpecker uh and and she saved it in like her driveway she saved it from the family cat he was I about see to where eat this it. is going i see and where this she, is going she's she she's she's shopping and the local local grocery store and a U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, official approaches her and basically arrests her. Huh. You have so and you have another situation where you have a guy, and this is one of the the more famous ones. We have a guy who's um, uh, and he works at a retirement home in Washington D.C. in Northwest D.C. So you can imagine vulnerable patients. The the retirement home is is vulnerable to flooding. And sure enough, they have uh, a, a, an instance where there's flooding and sewage backup, and he follows SOP and releases the sewage into Rock Creek, which is uh, a stream, a creek that runs in the middle of Washington, D.C., uh, but it's a tributary to the Potomac River. So he was prosecuted for violating the Clean Water Act.
Mm-hmm. He didn't know he was he didn't know where he the, the water was being sent. He had no idea. But mm-hmm. he was prosecuted for this. So and that's a fair I, notice. That's a fair notice issue, right? Right. And last I heard, last I heard the Wall Street Journal did a story on him several years ago. Last I heard, he was mopping the halls at Gallaudet University, which is a university for the blind and deaf in Washington, Northeast Washington, DC. Hmm. Um, so you have situations. You, you can you, have, can you explain what fair notice is? Why is fair notice important? And why do we kind of take it for granted? Yeah, it it, it's it's basically like the, the knowledge that you are, you may be engaging in behavior uh, that carries criminal penalties or yeah. could be punishable. Ahead of time, be, right? You got to know about it ahead of time before you've right. already done it. So Right, be, being, 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 <laughs> uh, being punishable by by you know uh actual prison time or a fine yeah. or some sort of mark on your record um we, we've all so, heard the we've all heard the uh the phrase ig- excuse me ignorance of the law is no excuse and it's like okay you could drive a mac truck through that because yeah that's a fair notice issue you're supposed yeah. to have fair notice that's part of due process and and so in mens rea for for its intent, it's, so there's actus right. there's there's actus rea which is the act of committing a crime, and then there's mens rea. Did you operate with intent to commit a crime? And we have various levels of of mens rea. There's there's knowledge. There's willful. There's uh, reckless disregard. There's there's different levels of mens rea uh, that that in the and prosecutors hate it because it requires them to you know do their jobs where they actually have to right. prove that you did do something right. that met the knowledge requirement in federal law yeah. and the problem the problem that we're seeing yeah. is a trend that we've seen in federal criminal law where congress is becoming more and more reliant on what we call strict liability meaning there is right. no mens rea yeah uh, so so in some yeah, that is a problem. Sometimes courts will read in a mens rea yeah. uh, into this into a statute, but that's yeah. but the 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 absence of fair notice, the absence that you might be engaging in some court some sort of behavior uh, that that um, is a is a crime. Uh, mm. Like let, let me let me let me this is this is a stupid example. Um, let me give you an example. So um, my girlfriend's daughter is seven years old. And she loves Taylor Swift. I don't <laughs> like Taylor Swift. She loves Taylor Swift. It's not my cup of tea. I do like one song by her, though. And that's that stupid Shake It Up song. Um, if I were to go, and this is the this is the closest thing I can come to getting myself in trouble. Um, <laughs> if, if I were to go, if I were to go and record a cover version of that and mm. fail to give her credit, or mm. whatever not not maybe i just forget to do it i don't know uh, mm-hmm. let's say let's assume there's some sort of criminal penalty for that or civil fine or whatever um it didn't matter whether i intended to do it um i'm not aware of any any criminal penalty did i did i break truly break the law the, 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 and that's the thing if you commit the act and you're not aware and you haven't been provided right. fair notice right. of the act being a crime. Yes. Are you truly guilty? Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a, I love that setup. Let me, 
give you uh, another example that's an actual I'll just go back to the postal thing because I found in my dissertation where I talked about it. Um, so I'll just, I'll read part of, the, I have part of my dissertation on the Fifth Amendment. Judge Kavanaugh wrote about the, I'm quoting myself here in my dissertation. Judge Kavanaugh wrote about the due process demands of mens rea and finding guilt in administrative and criminally liable conduct. It's just a paragraph. Don't worry. The first such case that Kavanaugh addressed was an opinion in the United States versus Moore. That was a federal drug case that ended up with no conviction on the drugs. Ah, but the feds did make a false statement charge stick. Okay, the individual who's being investigated was shipped a U.S. postal package by investigators containing what investigators believed he thought were drugs. And he signed for the package with a false name. <laughs> now, this is Kavanaugh. This is me quoting Kavanaugh. Unlike many government forms, the form contained no warning that an inaccurate statement might be a crime. And it's not otherwise clear that more or most people would know that signing the wrong name on a postal delivery form is a crime. Kavanaugh began. So that's the end of the quote for Kavanaugh. This is still me. And this is the key point to his concurrence. This is Kavanaugh again, quote, but the defense did not request a knowledge of the law instruction and the district court did not require the government to prove the defendant knew his conduct was unlawful. So the issue was not preserved for appeal. Now, this is interesting because I don't think most people know that that's a crime. And if it doesn't say it's a crime, yeah. how could you have fair, fair notice? And the point, you're, we're linking fair notice with mens rea. And this is all part of due process historically understood in our tradition, the Anglo-American legal tradition, that if I don't know that's a crime, how could I have a criminal mindset when I engage in that conduct? And That's how right. could I have mens rea? And if those two things are, if mens rea is required for criminal conduct, which historically it is, with maybe a couple exceptions, and fair notice is required for due process, and both are required for due process, we got we got a major constitutional problem. And we also have a problem with like just basic morality because yeah. we all know that it's not we know kind of what's fair and not fair. Like when you're dealing with kids and you get, and a kid gets in trouble, the kid didn't know what he was doing was wrong. That is usually enough to mitigate the severity of the punishment of the kid. Right. I mean, if the kid doesn't know, you know, now if you tell him like, don't throw rocks at cars when they're driving by. And you know, I mean, he should have known that, but now, you know, you're on fair notice. You do it again. And he's doing it again. Well, okay, there's mens rea, right? Unless the kid has a mental right. problem or something, like a real like learning disability or something like that. Right. No, there's 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 really good uh, and this is a, again not a uh, <clears throat> a segment of the population that is particularly uh received a lot of uh uh you know sympathy from from most Americans, but um although I, I would argue they should uh, to some degree. Um, you, There was a markup last year of a bill that we worked on, and it's called the Kenneth P. Thompson Begin Again Act. 
And so what this bill does is super simple. It's super basic and it's really common sense. Um, to my knowledge in federal law, there's only one expungement statute uh, at all, but there's one specifically, uh, this one is specifically designed for uh, simple possession of a controlled substance. Um, the catch is you have to be under the age of 21 to be eligible for that expungement. Uh, so all the Kenneth P. Thompson Begin Again Act would do is take out the age restriction. It would make it available to people of all ages. Okay. Common sense, common sense piece of legislation. Um, and during markup in the House Judiciary Committee last year, Republicans did what Republicans do, and they made it all about fentanyl. Hmm. Um, they they offered an amendment. Uh, it was Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana who offered an amendment that would um, exclude fentanyl. Uh, so in, when we say exclude fentanyl, we're not talking about some, uh, you know, just a um, like a hit of just pure fentanyl or whatever. We're talking about like anything you know, that has fentanyl in it. That's correct. Right. So even trace amounts of fentanyl. Um, so would, that would be considered simple possession of fentanyl, even if it has just a trace amount of fentanyl. Hmm. Okay. So, um, so the, the, does that pretty uh, much gut the proposal then? Like, not, I mean, it hurts it, yes, but does it completely gut it? No, not necessarily. It just hurts it. So okay. the issue, the so the problem with that is, um, if you're a user, mm -hmm. um, the reason one of the reasons we've had so many opioid deaths is be, or fentanyl related deaths is it, these synthetic uh, opioids uh, is because users don't know what's in the drugs. Yeah. Um, and, and we've, we've, and unfortunately, societally, there's a certain class of people who looks down on things like fentanyl testing strips uh, or safe injection sites or whatever they be. So these people can't can use drugs safely. Um, and we can get on a whole tangent about th those issues and I'm happy to do it. But um Congressman Matt Gates, who is not someone I usually dis usually agree with on on um, especially in, look, I come from I have a Republican conservative background, but Matt Gates is often um, interesting to say the least. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but he offered an amendment to Johnson's amendment to basically say to require a knowledge requirement to have a knowledge requirement. You had to knowingly possess a drug that had fentanyl in it. That's a lot and harder to prove everybody. Just a FYI. lot, hard, lot <laughs> harder to prove. And, and especially because like you're, if you're a user, again, unless you have access to say right. testing, uh, to, to testing strips or to, you know, or using a drug at a, a injection site where those testing strips would be available, whatever the case may be, um, you don't know what's in that drug. Yeah. So, and then yeah, the amendment was, a, they adopted Gates's, they, 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 uh, they changed the amendment to um, more well, good for him. Like yeah, no, but he he specifically referenced like mens good rea being such an issue here, um, and he's yeah. right. And and you know, and we do have um, Chip Roy. So there was a bill several years ago called this. Well, it's still the bill's still around. Um, it was reintroduced already. This Congress it's called the Smarter Sentencing Act, and there's okay. a section of the Smarter Sentencing Act. Um, that would require the federal government, the Department of Justice, to make a com to to actually make a complete list of all federal criminal statutes 
their maximum penalties, how many times it's been used, uh, so on and so forth, as well as all regulations that carry criminal penalties. The same stuff required to make it publicly available online uh, so every everyday Americans can go and look at it and see what behavior is potentially criminal. Um, we've we've managed to get Congressman Chip Roy uh, to introduce that as a standalone proposal, meaning it's separated from the rest of that Smarter Sentencing Act proposal on the House side. Uh, he's done that. It's bipartisan. He did that with Hakeem Jeffries uh, in the past two Congresses. Um, we're hopeful that we might be able to see some movement on that in this Congress. Um, so, uh, hmm. but that's that's something that that, that <laughs> several years ago the House had a uh, the House Overcriminalization Task Force. It was chaired by uh, Jim Sensenbrenner, Bobby Scott from Virginia, uh, my adopted home state. Um, it's where I currently live, uh, and a bunch of other members. This this commission, this task force. Oh, 2014, 2015, 2016, something like that. Um, they actually they asked the the Congressional Research Service to put together this list of criminal statutes, and the and CRS came back to the task force <laughs> task force and said they lacked the manpower needed oh, to put goodness. together this. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That's how much of a there's the clip. There's the clip for Twitter right there for this episode. Yeah. That's insane. That's not surprising. You know, with my, with my students, I don't know so much about the other faculty, but with my students, and I, I, I'll i bet that my fa- that other faculty, most of them don't understand this either, uh, yeah. have no idea, one, how big the government is. In fact, I'll bet you that the average person elected to president doesn't know how big the government is until several years into it, and they're supposed to run the damn thing. Um, but so that's one issue, but related to all these agencies, they all do something and they're all prohibiting something. And oftentimes those prohibitions come with criminal penalties. It doesn't matter if it's energy or if it's uh, interior with the fish and wildlife, you pick up an Eagle feather. Uh, well, you're now a federal felon because you picked up an Eagle. You didn't even know it was an Eagle feather, but even if you did, there's nobody around and you just want to have an eagle feather on your bookshelf. <laughs> Next thing you know, it's on Instagram and you're in handcuffs or whatever. I mean, they yeah. could charge you and not like they would, but they could. could. I mean, it's, it's, it's frustrating because one of the, we've had this debate over the past few years um, over policing. Um, and, and one of the things that people, people don't seem to understand when, because like, the, what's the number one reaction when we have some sort of public nuisance or we, we view as a societal ill or whatever the case right. may be? It's we, there ought to be a law, you know. That's yes. That's that tends to be where that's, everybody that's, goes. That's good. I like that. I like where you're going with this. Where whenever we create a new law, particularly well, especially one with criminal penalties, we are basically saying it is okay for the government to use force. At the point of a gun, yeah, to enforce this law. That's gun violence, by the way, we, for everybody we, keeping track. We are creating, <laughs> we are creating interactions with law enforcement. Now, this is on the federal side, but states have their own laws, sure. and states, yeah, it's the same know, thing. Uh, whenever you ask a lawmaker to to pursue a new criminal penalty, mm-hmm. uh, you are asking 
or more police interactions. And, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and and that's what, what could that's possibly go wrong. <laughs> that's exactly it. And and that and the reason Chip Roy introduced that bill, it was he introduced that bill um, at the height of the congressional debate over policing. And yeah. he th- their thinking was, uh, if we want to, uh, if we want to address this issue of policing, we should know what where we are having where we're sanctioning interactions between law enforcement and people mm. uh, because, and it all goes to the over criminal over criminalization and over federalization of federal criminal law. Mm. There's a lot of stuff the federal government has on the books, crimes the federal government has on the books that should be solely enforced at the state level. Um, like what? Like, can, can I mean, you, well, give me an example. I, I can't, I'm not off the top of my head. You put me on the spot. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said <laughs> it. Um, but the, you know, look at, uh, I would say something like, um, oh, I mean, drug laws are a good example of it. Um, every single state has its own con- controlled substances act. Right. Every right. single state has its own control- yeah. controlled substances act. You know, some states like Oregon, they handle it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Oregon has, I think they decriminalized uh trafficking still remains illegal but they decriminalize a simple possession of of controlled simple substances yeah. right so uh but every 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 state has this and, and this is sort of like a when you look at the federal criminal system particularly the prison system um you're talking about 175,000 give or take on the day prisoners these are people who are incarcerated in a and we consider that uh, incarceration means they're in a, uh, a high security prison, medium security prison, federal prison camp, whatever the case may be. Um, so states, on the other hand, um, it, state prison populations, um, again, on any given day, one and a half million, 1.7 million. Um, states should be largely running these issues and, and taking these issues, not, you know, we, sh- and I understand that there are jurisdictional issues. If someone crosses state lines, things like that. Right. But, um, but drug laws at the federal level are largely in my two cents pointless uh, because, because states bear the brunt of this anyway. Gotcha. Um, that's my two cents, but yeah. yeah. Well, um, the, uh, my understanding is that the the what's been called the police power of the state, which is a kind of a technical term for people that are not into this constitutional law stuff, but it's um it's been federalized through the commerce clause typically um in the in the constitution. That so there's like now a federal <laughs> police power. Um uh, I mean, there's there's Thank always you. been a federal p- police power to to some extent on like um, federal uh, land, like territory, or um, like on on um, military bases, for example. It's still illegal to kill somebody on a military to murder somebody. I should be more specific, or rape somebody in a federal building. I mean, that's kind of a police power thing. But th- yeah, I mean. The, the the difference between the feds and the state i'm not sure from a due process perspective what does it ma- does it matter from a due process perspective is is due process better protected well, at the state level 
I, I don't know that due process is better protected at the state level and and because when it comes to acquitted conduct sentencing um oh yeah that's yeah i mean um you know you'd have to have right uh, yeah uh I, I think it gets i think that gets a little tricky um mm-hmm. it, one you have i think it also looks on looks at you have to have to look at where you this gets way down in the weeds um sure. you have to look at where you believe the bill of rights applies now from our from our perspective the bill of rights applies both to federal citizenship and to state citizenship um but so if if when the due process clause it's been incorporated um so the states would have to protect due process mm-hmm. um but there is i think i i don't i haven't researched this enough to know my is really the expert on acquitted conduct acquitted conduct sentencing but there is some belief that the history of acquitted conduct sentencing might go back into unsavory areas of American history, like the same way that gun laws would go back to unsavory aspects of American history. If those of you who don't catch my drift, I'm talking about Jim Crow. <laughs> um, so, uh, so now everybody that's listening to this is very excited because they're <laughs> waiting for you to mention guns. Well, I mean, well, gun, well, gun my fr- laws. My so you... friends are my everybody that it's involved in this project are like Second Amendment people, and the drug issue. You know how Republicans are with drugs, just kind of yeah. take it or leave. I mean, we're listening to the uh, libertarians. I mean, we hear you, <laughs> but then like the libertarians start mentioning the connection with firearms and drugs, and all of a sudden everybody's paying attention. Like, oh, well, yeah, you, you simple you possession. Have... Oh, now I know what you're talking about. Well, people, because the the frustrating thing to me, um, as I mean, I, look, I'm a gun owner. I own, I only own one gun. I own a a, a nine millimeter, you know, but uh, and it's just for home protection. Believe me, I'm aware a 12 gauge shotgun is better for home protection. Um, but and with a seven year old roaming about the house, uh, uh, trigger locks are necessary. Um, so, uh, look, um, the. Th- when it comes to discussions, especially right now, when it comes to uh, discussions about crime, fentanyl, so on and so forth, um, I think my and I consider myself politically homeless uh, at, at this stage of my life. A lot of people um, do, yeah, yeah, and growing too. Sure. Um, so makes my job fun. Yeah, but it does. <laughs> uh, Republican Republicans frustrate me to no end because. I agree that there's an individual right to gun ownership created by the Second Amendment. I agree with Heller and McDonald. Um, But Republicans, in particular strong Second Amendment conservatives, don't seem to grasp, and and Democrats do this too, and it's just the reverse. Um, You, we have seen tremendous gun liberalization in the states over the course of the past 10 or 15 years, right? Uh, you know, we saw the expiration federally, we saw the expiration of the assault weapons ban back in 2004. Uh, and since right. that time, we've seen a tremendous growth. My home state, Georgia, where I'm from originally, uh, just created a constitutional carry. Um, you know, and and I, I don't... Well, I'm in California, so... You I have don't... no gun rights. <laughs> well, every <laughs> every inch is a battle. Yeah. No, I, I I imagine so, but it is. You, it's constant. You, it's constant. But we've also seen at the same time, um, especially in the past few years, that there has been a rise in gun violence, gun related violence. 
Now, if you ask me, Jason Pye, uh, I would tell you that violent crime rates are half of what they were at their peak in 1991. That violent crime, while has gone up in recent years, it is far from an epidemic. Um, I would tell you that the 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 National Crime Victimization Survey shows no measurable in, increase in victims of gun related uh, uh, victimizations. Um, there is data to back that up. Um, More people are killed that, with fists and 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 feet than rifles and shotguns of all kinds, according to the well, FBI. What I would say, what I would say is, Republicans have to be very careful about the crime narrative because, because, um, because of what we're seeing on TV, you know, gun-related shoot, you know, school shootings, so they on get, and so they forth. They get the headlines. Those they get, get the headlines. Some of them do. Well, let me yeah. let me revise my statement. Some of them do. Yeah, but so, but you you have to you have to be very careful. Um, when you're talking about crime from a, if you're a Republican, because it's very easy to say um, that, well, crime, well, if we only had gun control, um, these school shootings wouldn't be happening as often. Or if we had red flag laws, these school shootings, shootings wouldn't be happening as often. If we had an assault weapons ban, these shootings wouldn't be happening as often. Um, because usually it's not Republicans saying that. Usually, well, Republicans. These, I'm sorry. These Republicans have to answer the questions. Gotcha. Uh, they're, yeah. they're put. They're put in. The, they're put in an uncomfortable space of having to answer those questions as states have consistently liberalized their gun laws and liberaliz- liberalization. For this conversation means you know making them classically uh, liberal. Yeah, classically liberal. Right. Yeah. Um, which is more how I identify myself than anything else. But uh, you know, it's right. <laughs> my uh, my pronouns are classical liberal. Um, <laughs> So uh, okay. you ha- it's a very careful thing that Republicans have to keep in mind here. Um, it's just you, you have to. And, and look, for, from the left, you also have to keep in mind that, um, you know, <laughs> banning so, guns dis- disarm. Go ahead. No, I was going to ask you, you're you're saying that there's wider implications of the correct Republican stance on guns that they're not making the connection to other things like drugs and stuff. So yeah, they're not making, they, yeah, they're not making a connection that, uh, that gun liberalization has also correlated. I'm not correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, but it has in, correlated to an increase in, in, um, school shootings, at least perceptions, I should say of increases in school shootings or sure. mass shootings. Um, and I, I think in well, the most of, liberal, the most liberal guns, uh, gun laws that we've ever had, like mm-hmm. na- nationwide, are correlated with virtually zero gun violence in schools. And that's I mean, I, Lee Harvey Oswald ordered his rifle <laughs> like in a Sears catalog or something. I mean, talk about liberal. Yeah, no, I'm not school shootings, you know. Right. I'm not making an argument for increased gun control here. What I'm saying no, is know, Republicans, Republican, Republicans need to be careful about about how they choose what hills they're going to die on. Yeah, that's right. You, you can't make the argument. You can't make the argument that crime is going up. Crime is going up. And then also make the argument that we need more gun liberalization, uh, that the Second Amendment is my concealed carry permit. 
and not accept not expect to get pushback as the number of school shootings or at least the perception that school shootings are going up and the number yeah. of mass shootings are going up uh you you can't those those arguments are like oil and water and and that's where i would tell my republican friends conservative friends be very careful because you're 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 talking out of both sides of your mouth when you start saying things like that is do we need to address uh crime in the united states yes we do <laughs> There is a way to go about it, and there's a way not to go about it. We have seen uh, the war on drugs started 50 years ago, 50 years ago. We have spent more than a trillion dollars in the war on drugs. Guess what? Drugs are winning. We've got to figure out a way to address the issue of of demand. If we address the issue of demand through drug treatment, rehabilitation, Second chance initiatives like record sealing and expungement for nonviolent offenses. Um, we can start addressing the problems with recidivism, the addiction, the addiction issue that we face. And we gotta remember, addiction is a public health issue. It's not addiction is there may be crimes, other ancillary ancillary crimes that happen that come as a result of an addiction. And those, I'm not saying those people shouldn't be punished. Um, they probably should, especially depending on the severity of the crime, especially if it's a violent crime. But we have to keep in mind that addiction drives a lot of crime. If we're not addressing right. the underlying cause of addiction, we're creating an entire uh, we're, we're one. We're creating more problems for ourselves because, um, you know, we we're susceptible to drug overdoses that creates workforce impl- implications, things like that. Sure. And and we're also creating the cycle of crime from which often there is not an escape for these people. And yes. my my uncle, who yeah. is a recovering drug addict, who um, who has constantly fought relapses uh throughout his life um you know he he is someone who so this who is I love. personal for you well this part of it is um I, i'm personal third, for a lot of people yeah i'm the third generation in my family my uncle me my uncle and his uncle who we each lost our fathers at or around the age of 12 so my dad died in 1993, September uh, 1993. Um, my uncle's uncle, my great uncle, uh, was an alcoholic. My uncle was a drug addict. I managed to avoid that stuff. I had a good mom who put the fear of God in me. Um, but she kept me on the straight and narrow. So my addiction became politics um <laughs> sadly uh but <laughs> i know i know how my life could have turned out yeah especially given like i i played music i um you know my most none of my friends direct none of my friends like in my strong like my immediate friend group did drugs or drank but i had plenty of friends who did mm-hmm. um i could my life could have turned out differently um and I'm not religious, but you know, I'll use the I'll use the phrase there. But for the grace of God, go I. Mm-hmm. Um, that I know my life could have turned out differently, um, and I really wish people understood. And I'm hoping that if there's one thing you, people who listen to your podcast will take away, is that we all have an instance in our lives that define us. Whether it's our personal that defines our personal politics, defines our outlook on life defines whatever um for me it was the loss of my father 
Uh, but some people, we unfortunately are defining a lot of people by their worst mistake. And we're not giving them a path. Yeah. Some states, some states are more than 40 states have record sealing and expungement laws. Um, some of those laws are misdemeanor only or only some felonies. Hmm. Um, we need to broaden and expand those laws. We need yes. more, more more laws like that at the federal level. Yes. We need you know strong expungement and record sealing um uh statutes. Um but what can, frustrates can you, me. Can you hold on one sec? I got a package I think just got delivered. Hold on a sec. Okay. I appreciate you uh uh letting me do that. Um <laughs> no worries. Sorry, so I'm sorry you got off track. I know you were talking about family issues and you're talking about yeah why you're you know this means a lot to you. Um yeah, it's it's just I, I really we need to have pathways to get people back on the right track and you gotta have people get give people hope right i mean yeah can i uh i think the connection with guns might be helpful at least for this conversation it's it's interesting um the the depends on what you feel like the police power really should be and i think the way I approach the police power is that uh, there there's a there's a historic right that the state takes itself to have to manage things like morality, mm. um, health, and safety, right? And that's where you get the obscenity laws. That's where you get the law against walking down the street naked, um, vandalism and against vandalism, drugs fits in that prostitution, stuff like that. All the vice stuff, um, the decency stuff. People don't want to see that police powers taken to be the, and I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying that's traditionally what it is, right? This was so, how New York City can have a vaccine mandate. Yes. Uh, Public you know, health and, gets wrapped into right. that. Yeah, that's right. And it used to be flag burning, um, of course. No, that that's, flag burning is interesting because the Supreme Court put an end to that. Where Now, the police power bumps up against individual liberty, right? Mm-hmm. And and how that works out and where that where you draw the line to that is kind of the debate. Because the police power is all about discretion. It's a discretion of the legislature what they want to do. It's once it's in stone, you got a different kind of discretion, which is judges and prosecutors. And if they have all this stuff to draw from, then a prosecutor that doesn't like you because of your race or now it's, I guess, gender or it's like sexual orientation. I guess I'm dating myself now with that term sexual orientation. That's like, so 1997, (laughs) Uh, you know, there's this enormous discretion and you can, that's where all the discrimination comes from. Right. I mean, that's, there was an enormous discretion in Jim Crow. It was built into the law. It was built into the culture where I can look the other way if I like you. And, um, if I don't, then the entire force of the community comes down upon your head. Yeah. 
And I mean, the way it's supposed to be is that we have laws, right? And, and then, you know, the laws have a certain process. It's very hard to get them through. You have to have a majority. You have to have the executive sign it. The judges have to okay it with the, you know, when it's litigated. So this discretion issue is one issue. And I see a whole set of issues with the discretion. So like with, with firearms, when people say we have to do something, do something about it. This goes back to what you were saying about kind of what the career builder congressman, uh, the resume builder is, yeah. look how many laws I helped pass. They don't ever say, look how many laws I stopped, <laughs> right? Or, um, you know, that's not on the resume. I stopped this, you know, I, it's yeah. usually I, I draft, I drafted this. I co-sponsored co this. It's all making laws. <laughs> you have so much laws that are being made because the incentive structure is for making laws and it's not for preventing bad ones. Yeah. And it's really hard to keep track of all this stuff. If you're a voter, I mean, dude, and we have the internet. I mean, but imagine before when we didn't have the research tools that we have available. So, yeah, I mean, there are 10,000 bills introduced in any given Congress. I mean, it's, that's it's insane. Nobody can keep track of that. And so no wonder there's lobbyists. I mean, they're the only ones that can even keep track of it and they can't even keep track of, of, they certainly can't keep track of 99% of it. They have their one yeah. little area and that's what they keep track of. Yeah, it's one and little I, area in nine times out of 10 where the client's paying them to keep track of it. Yeah. Right. Well, and then if you're if you're a representative, if you're a member of Congress, I've had candidates for Congress on here and 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 for the state legislature. And I I you know, I listen to them, I let them do their spiel because they they can't help it, right? They do their spiel <laughs> and they start yeah. talking, right? And I'll let them do that. And then I'll interrupt them and I'll say, you know, you said it was all about leadership. What are you going to do on the first day? And I wait, I wait to hear what they're going to say. And then I say, you didn't say what I wanted you to say or what I was hoping you would say, which is coming from a humble place of you have no idea what the hell you're doing because the government is so huge. <laughs> There's no way you can read all that stuff. Yeah. There's no way. So I might, my, 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 what I'm at wondering is how are you going to hire the people that you trust to read it for you and tell you what's really in it? it? And that, that's even in and of itself, not necessarily a good, a, a good answer. There, there's no good answer to that question because, you know, when I go, right. <clears throat> when I go to the Hill, I know. Um, I'm meeting people who are between the ages of like 24 and 30. I know. Yeah, or, or, or even maybe, maybe yeah, tell us what it's like. Tell us what it's really like. How much do these people get paid? <laughs> um, so they got a boost in their pay, um, in the, in the legislative branch appropriations bill last year. So they're, they're getting paid and like, I'm the but rare this is one really expensive place to live. Oh, oh yeah. You kidding me? So, uh when you say so, they got a boost in pay, you know, I'm not sure really what that actually means. Like you know, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, the cost the cost of living in DC is it's not as bad as New York, but it's it's way worse than where I'm from in in Atlanta. Um so uh you know, 
uh, like your standard one, your standard studio apartment in this in the District of Columbia is going to cost you eighteen hundred dollars a month. Um, so, so I mean, if you're the, if you're way you're you're a teenager and you're thinking, what am I going to do for a living? I would love to be a staff member of a member of Congress. This is not a lucrative career you get into, right? Not I initially, mean, no. It's, it's not like initially. saying you want to be a public defender or something. I mean, you're. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it not initially. Be, it should be important, but it's not. Like as far as well, the pay. Yeah, if if you if you're if you're coming out of college, and you're going to work on the hill, your first job most likely is going to be a staff assistant, and you're going to make forty grand a year, maybe. Um, Again, the pay scale is better for that than it used to be. Um, it's gone up some, um, but it, it's still it's still that's a low rung, you know, office like you're a step above an intern, which means you're getting uh, you know a steady salary, you know, paycheck and all that stuff. Um, the money if you're if you're the, the your higher senior staff tend to get paid more. And, and let's keep in mind here, each member gets what we call a, an MRA. It's the member's representational allowance from which they pay right. their staff right. uh, and, and any other expenses, their their district office expenses, things like that. And, and, and on the House side, each staff, each member gets, I think it's 18 staffers and it's divided between their DC and district offices uh, if or office if they only have one. Now, could they, could the member... Do they have the discretion to hire as many people as they want for that number, or is there is there caps oh, and minimums? Um, there are regulations around it, um, and I don't remember the specifics because I never worked on the Hill. Um, so they can't just an... have one person and they get the whole. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are caps on salary. Yeah, um, gotcha. uh, but the, the caps are higher than they used to be. Um, it used to be that a chief of staff couldn't make more than a member. Uh, but that that is now no longer the case. There are chiefs who are pulling in more than the member now. It's not 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 substantial. Well, I guess it depends on your definition of substantially. I know of one chief on the Senate side who was earning and uh, above two hundred thousand dollars a year. Members make one seventy four, one seventy seven, something like that. So um, their base salary, I think they get. Don't they get a per diem of something, some kind? The members do. Kind of the, allowance. The, yeah, the members might have a per diem. Um, the the staffers don't. Um, so, but so so the the I know in state legislatures per diems are, are normal, but I don't federally I don't remember. But they also get all their flights paid for out of their out of their uh, members' representational allowance. Um, okay. Whenever they fly on official business, but um, so gotcha. but you're meeting with you're meeting with people who are who are younger, some barely out of their thirties, some most most of the ones I've met with over the years have been in their you know, mid to late twenties. Um, and look, they're taking on these people, these, these staffers you meet with have these, have issue sets that are wide ranging and they even have trouble keeping up with what's, what's coming to the floor and whatnot, what, what's not right. coming to the floor. And I mean, and look, <clears throat> um, we talk about the big bills that are 2,500 pages long and all that. Those are the exception, not the rule. Right. Um, but even, even the, the debt ceiling package the Republicans passed, you know, a couple of weeks ago was a 300 and it was an excess of 300 pages. I think it was like 340 or something like that. So you're still talking about a bill that takes some time to read and digest. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, it's, that's not easy to do. No. Um, and, and, and literally when my old job, when we had, there was a March of 2018, we had the, um, we had the omnibus that was passed 
then. And we were control effing through that bill with keywords, trying to find different things that we were thinking were going to be in there. So we had literally sit there control F with, we had about 20 keywords that we were going through to see if they were in the bill. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it took us four or five hours to really understand the, the, well, one to find if the stuff we were looking for was in there. And then, um, then you start reading the bill itself to find out what, what actually is going on because there's all these other extraneous things that get added onto those bills. But right. you know, most bills are, are not super long, but even the, I would even argue a 15 page bill, depending on what it does. Um, if you had to go back and research to find out exactly what it does, that takes time. It, you know, yeah, this morning, right. it, it took, yeah, this morning it took me an hour and a half to just to read, read through a 14 page bill. And 14 pages is by itself, not enough, not a ton, right, um, but right. 14 pages of, of researching a bill and trying to find and looking at code sections, things like that. It takes some time. Let me tell you what my concerns are so far. And you can tell me what you think about this. Um, I'm an educator and I know the blank looks I get from students when they are, they have too much to do. Cause I've been there. I've done it. I've done it myself. Yeah. I've I've been the one giving that blank look because I'm I'm you know, I was a student myself, and I I know as an educator, there's no way that the people's representatives can digest that information. Right. There's no way. And well, and I'm, I'm talking maybe people that have been there for a really long time. But then you've got, and this is a separate issue, but you've got on the Republican side, this fascination with term limits, which totally goes against exactly what I just said, which is that the people that have been there the long time, they're the only ones that know what the hell's going on. So now you want to exclude everybody who wants to understand what the hell's going on. And that, that, that's a recipe for disaster. Okay. I mean, I don't want to talk about term limits if you don't want to, but but I, but I do. (laughs) So. Okay. Fine. <laughs> no, you just you touched on a, a on a, a hot time. So like yeah. I have my day job and then I have a bunch of stuff that I'm involved in that that like I do advisory stuff on. And term limits has is one that has complete has come up because I do a lot of stuff in like the article one space, just like restoring the legislative branch, all this. And term limits is something that has frequently come up. And I'm like, you know, I don't like term limits. And let me tell you why. One, we have elections. Um, and, and there you two, go. Hey, what a concept. Two, Amazing. What elections? What are those? And two, two, if you want more competition in our elections, you don't need term limits. What you need is more seats that are competitive every two years. Right now, right now, we might have, and you can go to political report and look at the house race ratings. And, and I, you know, I, I haven't done a count uh, on them myself to today or recently, but I know headed into the 2022 midterm elections, there were about 35 seats, give or take, that were considered toss-ups, meaning they could have gone either way. And then you have lean Republicans, leans Democrats, maybe another 30 seats. So you're talking about 65 seats, give or take, that are actually competitive. Um and there are 435 seats in the House of Representatives. You mean to tell me that 
three quarters of, or whatever the math is on that, of of congrat of house seats. We already know the outcomes. Mm-hmm. We're just arguing over these other ones that we don't know what the outcomes of those are going to be. Right, and we have to wait to decide. Yeah. What's the point of elections if you know if you want to see mm-hmm. more competition, you need to be asking your lawmakers to stop to stop creating districts that benefit one party or the other. And look, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But it's if you have, but when you look at it, it's a real disservice to those of us who consider ourselves politically politically homeless. Um, according the most recent Gallup survey I saw said somewhere between 40 and 44% of Americans consider themselves politically independent. Um, that, you know, however many it is on the Republican and Democratic side. So, but independence to the clear plurality, nobody is talking to them. No one is talking to them and they're, and they're completely gettable, um, the party that talks to those people in the future will be the party that wins majorities. Um, But unfortunately both parties are only talking to the margins. Let me uh, pull something up here and share it with, uh, you mentioned, uh, this is something you mentioned a few minutes ago about restoring article one. (laughs) You remember that? (laughs) Yeah, I do. All right. So, Um, be prepared. I'm going to, I'm going to say, prepare yourself (laughs) for what I'm about to share. (laughs) Okay. Let me just for, cause I'm an educator. I want everybody to see how I got to this. Do you, can you see it? Yeah, I see it. Okay. All I did was I Googled CRS legislative process, and you're probably wondering what that is. Okay. All you policy wonks know what this is, but I'm talking average people. I want to reach average people. CRS is just the Congressional Research Service. It's a service that was created by Congress and works for Congress. And I just, I taught a course on Congress last semester, and I used this. And you click on it. And it's a document. You can print it out. I like to make it bigger. That's me. (laughs) All you old people know what I'm talking about. And I'm just scrolling through the document. I'm, oh, I want to see what they say, what Congress is. Now, this is Congress saying what Congress is. And what I usually do when I I have this pulled up is I have Article 1 of the Constitution pulled up right beside it. And I invite my students to take a look at the wording here and see if they see anything that's a problem. And I'll tell you where the problem is. It's in the very first sentence, the very first part of the first sentence. Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution grants all legislative powers to a bicameral congress it's not a quiz i'm i'm not trying to put you on the spot but do you see no, anything you, missing <laughs> uh so, so uh well one it doesn't talk about anything about rec- rulemaking authority that goes into the executive branch which Cong- congress has frequently kicked over to uh you know all right. some of its legislative power to rulemaking uh branches um yeah so well, that's me, uh good. 
Yeah, I was going to just, okay, sorry, I have the Bible pulled up. Hold on. How did I get the Bible pulled up? Uh, let's uh, do cons Constitution, Article 1, and wow, how wonderful. Let's get the text. <laughs> let's get the text pulled up. Let's, the Cornell has it. If, if if I was in my office, I would have my my copy of the Constitution sitting right here next to me. All legislative powers herein granted. They they're totally missing herein granted. Oh. Uh, in in the CRS report. Interesting. Yeah. And see that is a limitation on government. It's not saying all legislative powers. Because the president can veto, then the president has that, and the president can has has uh, the the power to suggest legislation. The State of the Union, for example, that's in the Constitution. So, well, the state, the state of the Union is in the Constitution, but it doesn't say anything about it actually having to be a big speech. No, um, but but he has the power to suggest be, be a legislative. Um, leader and in, in mm -hmm. terms of suggesting policies yep. but here in article one which creates the congress you you scroll down and you go down to uh, section eight the things that congress is actually authorized to do these are the particular things that congress can do and it's very specific it's like you know, coin money established post offices uh, punish, define and punish piracies, declare war, made, get have a navy. And I know this is really basic. This is basic stuff. And there's more advanced topics like, you know, it doesn't say we can have an air force. So why do we have an air force? You know, Nancy Pelosi mentioned that. But, you know, so there there is a necessary and proper clause. And mm -hmm. and so typically... Um, the Democrats like to to maximize that and ma basically make it to where Congress can do anything, basically. Yep. But it's just it, this really bothers me that the Congress of the United States itself takes out the here and granted because it's it's like it's like Spank basically saying that doesn't matter that the the those powers are given to Congress by the people and they're limited to what was in the text. And that that yeah. understanding is just the self-understanding Congress right here is saying, eh, yeah. no, no, we have all power. We can no, do whatever, that's, anything that's legislative. We can do it. That's that's the understanding that a lot of members, um, even on the Republican side, seem to have. And, you know, uh, you, you 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 mentioned this earlier and I was I was hoping to find a way to work it in. I'm going to take that liberty now you, because you went to Article one, Section eight, you know, talked about to regulate commerce amongst the states. Um you know, that being the commerce clause and and there used to be this very specific understanding of what the commerce clause was. And then you had Wickard v. v. Filburn, uh, which related to uh, the, I think it was the Agricultural Administration, uh, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. I think that's what it was. Um, so, and you had a, a, a farmer who grew too much of a crop and he was using it for personal consumption but because that crop took away or affected the commerce, if because if he hadn't grown that crop, he would have bought the the crop from someone else. Uh, mm -hmm. It affected the 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 prices of that crop. I think it was corn. Um, 
and therefore it it, it infringed or it had it, something that com- Congress could regulate because it affected interstate commerce. And there we have this huge hole blew in the Constitution because of the uh, because of the Wickard case and the interpretation mm-hmm. of the Commerce Clause. Further diminished or further uh, watered down when the with the Raich v. Gonzalez case, I think in two thousand three or two thousand five which dealt with California's medical marijuana law. Um, and uh, unfortunately, Justice Scalia was in the uh, majority on that, which further watered down the the understanding of the Commerce Clause. Um, and uh, my, yeah. understa- my understanding is, you know, very limited on the Commerce Clause, but my understanding is that um, that... I think Senator Whitehouse threw a fit about this during the Kavanaugh uh, hearing. Sure actually, did. actually, it was probably the Gorsuch hearing too. But um, I watched. I I made myself suffer through all those um, those that all those theatrics. But um, he uh, he made a big deal about the what he called the Roberts Five. And that's Chief Justice Justice Roberts and the, the Republicans, most of the Republicans on the court. My understanding was that um, it's been Republican justices that have been the only ones pushing back on the expansion of the Commerce Clause at all, starting with uh, Lopez, the Lopez case in 1995. That was a gun case. It was a gun-free zone case. I don't know if I you remember, remember the that. Lopez yeah, I remember the Lopez case. Yeah, so yeah. Raish, it was, Raish only, it was only Republicans on the on on that side. Uh, so I'm, I'm pulling up Raish v. Gonzalez now, but uh, okay, I remember a lot of us were um, were were frustrated about that case because of the um, because of the expansion of the Commerce Clause that um, that came as a result of it, and as, as so it was Gonzalez v. Raish. Uh-huh. Um, so I had it backwards. Um, Gonzalez v. Raich and uh, the 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 question in the case. Um, oh, I don't see the question here. Um, so oh, I'm just looking at the, the, the yeah yeah the, oh, the, yeah the holding the holding was Congress may ban the use of cannabis even if states approve it for medicinal purposes. Uh, and in the majority, you had Stevens, Kennedy, Souter, Ginsburg, Breyer, and concurrence in judgment Scalia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the dissent was O'Connor joined by Rehnquist, Thomas, and all but part three. And then Thomas filed his own defense, excuse me, his own dissent in which he, mm-hmm. I think he, for memory serves, he, he said, you know, he, he disagreed with marijuana or marijuana usage or drug usage, but he cautioned the court on further expanding the commerce clause, which was the end result of, of that, um, right. of that judgment. Right. Um, right, right. And, and, and so, you know, granted everyone on the conservative side, except for Scalia, uh, opposed it. Uh, but you know, uh, and look, the, yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. So let let me just, uh, I think what I'm saying is that there is a, ever since the new deal, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the Wickard versus Filburn case and all those, you know, expansion of the, the, the federal control of the economy and, all sorts of criminals to criminality, you know, um, was well, the end of the, the end of the Lochner era more specifically. So you got the NFA, for example, the national firearms act in 1934, 
but but you know the, this expansion of of the federal police power was at that time during the new deal a very partisan issue i think it was pure, it was it was mainly democrats well democrats were in control of the whole thing mm. the new deal was a democrat thing and uh, the wickard versus filburn thing um it was it was democrat appointees uh, that were that were roosevelt appointees and um so you had that in 1941 and it was only like 50 some years later in 1995 that you had any pushback on that at all and now now you're right the republicans are not purebred pushing back on this stuff like okay let me just pull up the lopez case really quick yeah um and just just really quick I mean, no no and it just and and just just while you're looking that up I'll, I'll say that the you know and and so you had the I mean, different eras of the court but obviously you had so you had this lochner era which uh, basically shot down uh, a lot of state-based economic regulation and push back on those police powers of the state. And then the Lochner era ends with West Coast Parish Company um, in 1937, which a lot of people consider the switch in nine, switch in time that saved the nine, because at the time FDR was um, was uh, developing his court packing scheme. Right. You know, and, and right. by the way, I should note, Due Process Institute doesn't work on any of this. this yes, is just- <laughs> totally, totally get it, totally get it, totally get it. This is just but my own just- personal... Fun times, but if anybody's concerned about drug issues, right, and and due process and criminality, and you're if you're interested in that, you have to have at least some uh, start getting into the details of what has been going on with the Commerce Clause during the 1900s, yep. and what where you know kind of get the try to get the story, the broad story is that the. I and and my understanding is that the Democrats were the it was basically their idea that we could just do whatever we want basically, and the only pushback in the nineties, uh, actually there was there was another pushback I believe in Prince versus United States, which was I think nineteen ninety seven. We and actually had I the don't... guy the guy that won that case. He came on the podcast. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, his name is Stephen Hallbrook, and that was a federal. Oh commandeering. yeah, yeah, that's a federal commandeering case. So that's another one, but that was all Republicans too on that side. So you have the, well, not the Roberts Five, but you have the Rehnquist Five. I guess uh, would would be what Senator Whitehouse would say about this case, maybe. But, and then you have, um, the Democrats on the dissent, but yep. so so it seems like the Democrats are always wanting an expansion seems mm-hmm. well actually besides you're saying besides race the the race besides race race so besides race, on drugs the, the on drugs they don't like the commerce clause that's, right? that's yeah and i mean the republicans Scalia, are kind of like eh, i don't know yeah and it's, it's it's an interesting it really is an interesting take on uh scalia who's who's you know made himself uh made himself the the originalist of the court you know he and thomas but mm-hmm. you know scalise was considered an originalist and he um here he is you know, fighting to expand the commerce clause uh 
to, I mean, I, from my perspective, to achieve a policy outcome. It wasn't based on a right. legal outcome. It was based on a policy outcome that he desired. And um, that's not, that is not how originalism works. If you want to pull up the actual case, I use Google Scholar. And some something like the Raish case, was it Gonzalez versus Raish? Yeah, Gonzalez versus Raish. Okay, yeah, it's going to pull right up. And then you can have the actual text, as the kids say, the actual text. <laughs> the actual text. The literal, this is literally. <laughs> this is literally the text of Gonzalez v. I like to print this out. You know, I, I have not made the transition over to digital uh, like most of my millennial uh, peers. My Also, my girlfriend and I constantly argue whether we're exennials or millennials. I consider myself a millennial. Um, she considers herself an exennial and I'm 11 days older, older than her. So, um, but no, I, I like, I always prefer hard copies and I like, I, I tried the digital book thing for a while and couldn't get into it. So, oh, yeah. um, yeah, I prefer hard copies of books, which sucks because we're, we're buying a house and I have to move all that crap. So. <laughs> I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. I know your but, pain. But no, I, I and, and I got to go in like five minutes, but I, I just wanted to, to just say like, look, when it comes to um, going back to what I work on and, and you know, some of the things we discussed, mens rea and overcriminalization and uh, our, our things we work on and, and the acquitted conduct sentencing, certainly something that we work on. And we look, we got that bill out of the House last Congress um, and it, we got it out of the Judiciary Committee by voice vote. I think we had fewer than 15 who voted against us on the House floor. Um, but what, sent was, the what sentence, was that bill again? That was the Prohibiting Punishment of Acquitted Conduct Act. Um, so that is the that changes the uh, acquitted conduct sentencing that's currently in federal law. Um, so but we couldn't get the Senate to take it up. Um, but most of what I deal with on a day to day basis is largely um, federal drug sentencing and second chance related okay. bills. Gotcha, so gotcha, gotcha. let me give your your audience a quick uh, rundown of some bills. So the first one is the Equal Act which is um, equalizes the treatment between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Um, That is, yeah, that's a bill that, that yeah, yeah, there's been a long history of, of that type of sentencing and we're working to, to eliminate the sentencing disparity between those two. I personally use crack. So would this help me? (laughs) Uh, Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. What if you're trafficking in large, if you have more than 28 grams, you're subject to the five-year mandatory minimum sentence. So I'm I'm going to follow this up. I'm going to follow this Yeah. But if you have five grams of meth, you're in even more trouble. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that that is a, yeah, I'm not working on that issue, but that's a five-year mandatory minimum sentence for five grams of meth. Um, So, uh, and then the clean slate act, which is uh, record sealing for um, simple possession and um, marijuana-related offenses all have to be nonviolent. We also provide a, a petition process. Um, the simple possession in um, marijuana offenses, that's automatic record sealing. Uh, but there's a petition process that would be set up uh, for nonviolent offenses, not, not drug offenses, any nonviolent offense when we specify what exclusions there are, all that stuff. The Kenneth P. Thompson Begin Again Act, which is uh, expungement for simple possession, um, for any individuals uh, over the age of 18 or 18 or o- older. Um, the Fresh Start Act, which would uh, create a, a federal Ooh. grant program federal grant program for states to do automatic record sealing and expungement. Um, and then 
uh, the Smarter Pretrial for Drug Charges Act, which is um, uh, and currently in federal law, if you uh, have a, a, drug, a sentence for felony drugs that is 10 years or longer, you are presumed not to uh, get bail. Um, this mm-hmm. would simply take away that presumption. Um, and it's in the same class as murder. And like, it's, there's only like a couple, there's like a few, um, there are a few felonies that are treated that way. One of them's murder. The other is fel- felony drugs. Uh, any, any drug felony that has a sentence of 10 years or more, um, wow. examples. Um, so we're working to get rid of, to change that presumption. That's so all how, that bill would do. How, how do people find your organization if, if they want to support it? Uh, sure. You can go to I. Sure. Uh, so you can go to iduprocess.org, the letter iduprocess.org. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at um, at iduprocess. You can find me on Twitter at pye at pi, um, where I tweet. Uh, Are you serious? That's your that's your Twitter account. Yeah. Wow, that's the shortest one I've ever heard of. So I had to I had to actually contact Twitter to get that uh, because someone else had had it and they but it was an active account. Uh, and the guy I knew at Twitter like hooked me up, and that oh, was nice. that was was that pre Elon Musk? <laughs> oh yeah, that was like seven or eight years ago. Uh, I doubt that was when Twitter was responsive. They're not responsive. They haven't been responsive be- since before the Elon takeover. Um, okay. So uh, and then th- look, there are other bills um, that yes. I could talk about. I could I could spend another hour or two talking to you about all of these things. Um, but just please check us out. Um, so far, please. everything you've said, I, I can't think of anything that I wouldn't be at least interested in, if not excited about. Well, yeah. and and I have a personal Substack as well. Oh, you Exile okay. Pop. Yeah, I, I have two Substack addresses to give out real fast. But my oh, personal wow. one is exilepolicy.substack.com. That is not affiliated with the Due Process Institute. That's just where I rant and okay. whine about everything that's gotcha. not related to criminal justice. Um, and then you also have the Due Process Institute Substack, which is dueprocess.substack.com. There's a newsletter there that I do every week on what's happening nice. in uh, what's happening in Congress. So nice. and I only do I only do it when Congress is in session, and I I try to to keep it as minimal as possible. But uh, Professor, thank you so thank much. You, for your time. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jason. I appreciate it, and I just want to say this is very important. Anybody interested in overcriminalization, you have to. Th- theoretically get clear about what criminalization is what should be criminalized if you don't have that you're not going to be able to see what over criminalization is so this is very important work thank you jason pye of the due process institute for coming on thank you professor i appreciate it see ya see ya